If you're a healthcare practitioner and want to learn more about how to develop more targeted treatments for your patients using genetic testing, then Bioceuticals DNA Testing in Practice is for you. This 10-module professional development course presented by Dr. Denise Furness is designed to help you unlock your patient's health potential. You'll learn how to move away from the trial and error approach that so typically leads to patient dissatisfaction to a targeted clinical model defined by decision-making that distinguishes those patients most likely to benefit from a given treatment from those who will not. For more information on the DNA Testing in Practice 10-module program, visit the Bioceuticals website or contact your Bioceuticals sales representative. Welcome to FXOMix with Dr. Mark Donahue, your gateway to genetics, research and technology in the field of personalised medicine. Hi everyone and welcome. Today we're talking with Dr. Yale Joffe, a global expert in the field of nutrigenomics. Yale has co-authored two books, It's Not Just Your Genes and Genes to Plate, and she and Dr. Christine Horton have created two online nutrigenomics courses for clinicians, Foundations in Nutrigenomics and Translational Nutrigenomics. She is currently an adjunct professor teaching nutrigenomics at Rutgers University. Welcome, Yale. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Really happy to be here. Yes, it's good to have you all the way from South Africa. Listen, we're going to be talking about nutrigenomics, but there's a story behind this for just about everybody because the genomics and genetics story is a story of the 2000s. And I believe your career began before that as a dietitian. Can you tell me how you moved from good old-fashioned kind of medical orthodoxy and adapted yourself to the genomics and genetics of today? What's the story? When did you become a dietitian and how did you tr cross that uh, divide? Very good question. <laughs> I was lucky enough to cross the divide. I am... Um graduated as a dietitian in 1993, and, and truth be told, I think in the first, like, three weeks of starting my dietetics degree, I realized that this was a, a major mistake and that it wasn't really what I'd been looking for. You know, I'd been looking for a, a degree in health and how we could use nutrition to make people more healthy and prevent disease, and I, I was absolutely horrified to discover that dietetics really wasn't that at all. But um, you know that that long ago it really wasn't falling, and so there was a, there was kind of an immediate disillusionment and disappointment with with the work that I was studying. I did go on to graduate as a dietitian, but I I never really practiced because I I had this I had this sense that something was missing and something was wrong, and mm. that the, the the nutrition we were practicing just wasn't resonating with me as being anything to do with health. And that I didn't quite know what it was. And um, I was lucky to, to, I went traveling as a dean when we finished our university degrees, yes. landed up in the UK, was kind of uh, peddling some, doing some nutrition just to kind of make ends meet. And I, I was lucky enough to be invited um, to spend two days at a company called Siona in, in the south of England, who were literally the first startup in the niche genomic space ever. And, and, and this was in um, 2000. And 2000, well, year 2000 was three years before even the human, the, the human genome draft had been published. 
so uh, basically, it was an investor and a, and a geneticist, and they really had extraordinary foresight. They really were visionaries. Who had a fairly exciting system genetics were going to really play a, a significant role. And when I met them, I thought they were quite crazy, and I was like, this is, <laughs> this is ridiculous. There's nothing going on here. Like, there's nothing genetics and nutrition has nothing to do with each other. And, um, and, and that, that itself was incredible because I joined them just really because it was the best offer I got, and it sounded quite intriguing. And I stayed with them for seven years, and um, I grew with the company, and a um, couple of years into it, I realized that it, I couldn't kind of wing it any longer, that I really needed to to be able to put the kind of theoretical knowledge behind what is proving to be quite an interesting space to be working in. And so, you know, dietetics not having prepared me very well, I went back to university, back to do my PhD. And um, being my PhD started in the early 2000s as well, like 2004. And in South Africa at the time, there was no genomics um, academics at all. And so I had no supervisors, which was quite challenging. And so we had a built a degree. You know, we got a geneticist and a nutritionist and an epidemiologist and a biostatistician, and we, we kind of rolled them into one. And, um, and that's how I, I spent the next couple of years, which is trying to, to really understand um, the kind of hard science behind what what was turning out to be a really interesting career for me, which was in genomics. How did that work? I mean, the, without the genome project, it's it's hard, it's like the days before and after computers. If there wasn't a gen, if the genome project had not produced much, genetics always seemed a pretty primitive area before that. Until we actually had the kind of twenty three thousand genes, it was invisible to doctors back at the time that you're talking about. So how was nutrigenomics emerging before the genome project had actually given <laughs> something to work with? So I have to say, I, I think it's still invisible to doctors, but um, <laughs> so, so what, what the Human Genome Project did was it, it created a, the draft of a sequence of the entire genome. Right. As you say, 20, 25,000. We're not exactly sure how many genes there are. They're still better, but Basically, they wrote down the code of the entire genome, but it wasn't that it wasn't that we hadn't looked and 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 been able to re-sequence in the genome. We just hadn't read the entire genome. So, if you look at a gene like MTHFR and you look at the research and how far it goes back, you will see in the 1980s that they had studies on MTHFR. So we knew where the gene was, we knew what the sequence was, we knew which chromosome it was sitting on, and we knew what the sequence around that gene was. So we knew we knew some we knew quite a lot of genes. We knew what the sequence of a lot of genes. What we didn't know is all the genes. And that's what shifted from from it and, and also those sequences were sitting in a very academic space. They weren't open source, they weren't available to the public, they weren't available to all the scientists. So it's not that we didn't know the sequence of some genes, we didn't know the sequence of all the genes. And that's essentially what changed when we, when we, got, we did the draft design. So you had to pick your targets at that time, I would imagine. So your PhD, I believe, was genetics and nutrition of obesity. So you, were ha- you had specific targets in mind and you were putting together nutrigenomics, the impact of nutrition and genetics and how that played out in obesity. Is that where your PhD went? Yeah, that, that's it. So actually there was another angle. So the angle was inflammation. So, so what happened in South Africa is we, 
we had identified quite an interesting conundrum in the South African um, obesity landscape, and that was that black women, so we have a huge problem with obesity in South Africa, same as Americans, same as Australia, mm-hmm. South East Americans. And what we had identified was that when, when black women became, African black women became obese in South Africa, they went on to develop a comorbidity of diabetes. But when white Caucasian South African women became obese, they developed a cardiovascular kind of lipidemia. Right. And we were very interested to try and understand why was one group um, manifesting with a different comorbidity from another group, even though obesity was kind of your core phenotype. So my, I was part of a, a big obesity research group where we all kind of bought our expertise and we all looked at this kind of interesting question in a different way. Excuse me. And, and my way was obviously to look at it through a new genomic lens. So I wanted to understand, were there any genes that were maybe in a different kind of population frequency or expressing themselves differently in the beef population between the, between the Caucasians and the Africans? Right. And the other thing is, was diet playing a role? So was their diet different? Did their diet influence their gene expression? And so that was what we were looking at. Again, from my perspective, the concept of genetics, there was, you know, the Watson and Crick version. It was a blueprint of life. Basically, the genes defined us. My understanding was the concept of epigenetics was not big at that time. The modifiability of genes was not thought to be a big thing. It was just, you got your genes, the environment played out on it. If you were lucky in the lottery of evolution, you survived. And if you were unlucky, you were just selected against. So that sounds like your PhD was already looking at epigenetic expression, how, what changes the expression of something rather than just what genes are you lumbered with. Is that, was that going on at that time? I mean, I think, I think you're right. I don't think I truly understood what I was doing at the time. I think that you're 100% right that the conversation around epigenetics and gene expression wasn't actually happening. Right. And that we, we, we were more focused on the SNPs and gene, gene variants and there wasn't a lot of conversation about this idea that um, I think I think I probably understand it better now, and I just happen to see the really good topic right. that different diets could really change the expression. We were much more fo- focused on kind of the biochemistry and biomarkers, and we didn't have any way of being able to measure gene expression at the time. So we were a little bit ahead of our time, but the question was right. I think we were asking the right question. I don't think we understood fully the mechanisms. And what, what's really interesting is my first half of my career was firmly in what I call nutrigenetics. Right. And nutrigenetics is really when you look at gene variants, mm-hmm. which is most of our genetic tests in the marketplace, where we're testing if there's a C or a, C or a DNA. And that's that really where there's a sequence change is really the field of nutrigenetics. And I think for the first half of my career, I didn't go past that. I didn't actually think what else is there in this incredibly interesting field. And it was only later um, where I became a lot more interested in, in that, you know, epigenetics is, is an interesting term because you can use it to talk about methylation, but you can also talk about influences of diet, lifestyle, environment, and on, on gene expression. And um, I, I agree to understand that there was a field called niche genomics. And in my world, we we talk about nutrigenomics as gene expression. Right. We talk about nutrigenetics as, as gene sequence. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, that does, because I, that was the, my next question yeah. was really, 
Okay. What, what is that difference? I can understand the SNPs and the genes and the predispositions. That fits a medical way, way of thinking. But the genomics, taking the whole of the genome and how it influences other parts of the genome and how external influences occur, that is much more difficult for me to understand, yet that's the field we are in when we're in healthcare, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, so I'm going to make it. I'm going to try and make it a little bit more simple, and I'm going to try to put on the level of genomics because I think when you talk about the big genetics, genomics become almost unfathomable. But we just kind of go back to these, and, and, and I have to say that not everyone buys into my definition. Um, you, know, you can still find people who will say, "Well, we can use genetics and genomics interchangeably." But I think it's extremely important that as students of genomics, we understand the difference and that we use the terms accurately and at the right time in the right place. And again, so so genetics is really what the genetic testing industry was built on. Right. It's, you know, we we test for SNPs or deletions or or substitutions, and we understand how that change in sequence had an impact on the the protein or the enzyme or the hormone. But, But... the magic, the, the real magic in this field is happening in what we call nutrigenomics. And, and, and just to define it again, it's when we look at a nutrient, a phytonutrient, an environmental toxin, and we understand how that trigger, that molecular basis, alters gene expression in some way, either by switching it on or switching it off or dimming it or increasing it. And we often talk about, I often talk about immune nutrition. You know, you know if, if dietetics was a great disappointment to me, then what is, what is the alternative? And for me, the most exciting feature of nutrition is the nutrigenomics space. That if we can practice nutrition, and, and this is what we do, I have a clinic here in Cape Town, and we, we try, this is what we try and do, is we use nutrition and our nutrition choices to impact gene expression. So we use nutrigenetics as information, as insight, to give us information about the patient, but we use nutrigenomics to treat our patient as the intervention. Okay. So that's that's moving it from the SNPs, which are, you know, nice to report, nice to see homozygous, heterozygous SNPs all around the place. And it moves it back into, well, that's a kind of background now, how do you influence the risk that may be associated with that? How do you upregulate or downregulate something Correct. so that you are not thinking I'm a genetic engineer, but you're doing what we did through evolution, which is the diet had to match our genome for our best survival. Coming back to that now, we're re-entering nutrition and environment as the expression of those genes. It's a pretty powerful thing if you can get hold of that to create a healthier human and also sometimes just to get around disease. So that's a transition that has amazed me, that we can always have been doing medicine. Effectively, in nutrition, we were doing something with diet that was making health, but we didn't know how we were making health. Now we're putting kind of details behind it to say, and this is how those things work, and you can change your gene expression without changing your genome. That's right, and that's what people often um, get confused when they ask what I do, and they think I'm actually uh, trying to change, you know, gene therapy, like that. Yes, it's what the queen for things, but actually that's not what we're doing. What we're trying to do is we're trying to impact gene expression in a way that is more conducive to health. Now you mentioned this concept of evolutionary biology, and what I mean, one of the major problems we have in the world right now, and why we've seen such a 
um, a crisis around health is we have an evolutionary genome, a sequence which hasn't really changed very much, but we have um, a, a feed system and a feed environment um, and an air pollution environment which has changed radically. Mm. And the genome sequence, because it's evolutionary and, and, and um, it doesn't change very quickly, has not been able to change to be able to protect us against our, our food choices and our environment. Mm. So there's a huge conflict and clash between our, our older genome, because our genome is very old, and our current food system. And that's one of the reasons why we've seen um, so many health issues manifesting now especially around the cancers, or autoimmune, and because of this disconnect, because of them. So what we're trying to do is we're trying, so we can't go and change, we can't force evolution by changing the sequence. We, we won't be alive long enough to do that. But what we can do is try and manage the expression of the sequence that we have. So a perfect example is um, inflammation. So we know the tnf alpha gene is one of the genes that have been studied probably, again, from the 1980s. This is one of the first genes that ever appeared in the literature. And we know that when you have a gene variant of GCA transition at 3 or 8, we get a, a twofold increase in transcription. So we get an increased uh, inflammatory response. It's kind of a chronic, um, low-grade inflammatory response. This would have been an extremely protective response in the time of evolution, kind yes. of practice where we were hunter-gatherers, we were living on the plains, the, the inflammation would have actually protected us. Now, because we are exposed to a, a, a continuous and chronic amount of inflammatory mark um, triggers, we have a load of inflammatory triggers, plus we have a tendency and a susceptibility to have an inflammatory phenotype, and obviously with the two together, we get this kind of overall chronic inflammation. So we are out of sync with our genome at the moment, and I don't see that changing in any time soon. What we need to work out is how do we how do we see that we can now upregulate or downregulate whichever way we want to go to be able to manage what evolution biology is essentially handed to us. I mean, evolution biology functions on reproduction and survival. Yes, and and we're not living in a reproduction and survival environment at the moment. There was a time a hundred years ago. This is a, a a thing that is definitely true in medicine where. The problem was lack of inflammation. You needed to have a strong inflammatory response to get your fight against the pathogens, get under control. Yep. And as you win the war, you know, with um, antibiotics, as medicine gets better at stopping the killers, the infections, keeping them at bay, sanitation does its bit. The problem seemed to become that as food became less food-like and inflammation yeah. Um, became the big new problem and arthritis, cardiovascular yeah. disease, Alzheimer's, these have emerged because we've yep. controlled the infections that maybe used to <laughs> prune the population. Correct. And what we're left with now also, is the survivors. Exactly. And remember that the other fundamental shift, which we saw in my PhD work, is that this, this huge change between the, the mega-369s and our diet. Mm. I mean, it's completely flipped on its head. So whereas our ancestors were sitting with a very high mega-3 and a very low mega-6, we have this... this incredible amount of immune effects in our diet. And so so when you put all of these things together, you know, the, the genetic kind of evolutionary genetics, the change in the kind of fatty acid profiles in our diet, plus the we don't you know need that inflammatory response anymore. We land up with this kind of 
severe kind of health crisis, which is what we're seeing in our patients. It's um, it's the doctor's curse at the moment because we keep looking to drugs to control inflammation and. If you ever look at our drug books, the basic thing is the exact mechanism of action is unknown. I have a suspicion sometimes that the drugs are fiddling with epigenetic yeah. expression and that tricks are being played. And some of those are being derived from the omega-3s. And it seems strange to me that we have the potential for diet to make a huge impact. Yet we keep turning to drugs as if, well, the diet, yeah. the supermarkets, the lack of omega-3s, that inverted ratio, and from what I understand yeah. now, omega-3s have gone from 1 to 1 to about a 10 to 1 ratio in favour of omega-6, that rather than uh, reversing that, good, yeah. that yeah. what we're doing is we're trying to say, oh, we can make a drug that imitates an, the biological products of an omega-3, the um, resolvins and protectins, they're yeah. great to know about, but it's not food. And coming back to something that can be population-delivered is food, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, they say that, that it used to be one to two. Right. It used to be a one to two ratio. And, and that it's not even possible, even if you grew your own food, even if you went and got to grass-fed kind of meat, you still would not be able to, to get black below one to seven or something like that. It's just physically not possible in our environment anymore. And in fact, 1 to 10 would be a fantastic outcome. I think most countries are sitting at about 1 to 15, 1 to 17. Right. And in South Africa, we did research. We were sitting at the, in the African population about 1 to 28. Can you imagine that? Right. So, so you're right. So, so that's the thing about the new nutrition. You know, we talk about this new nutrition science where we have to look at everything from genome right through to kind of, uh, you know, biology, but then right through to to our food system because they all so in, they also connect it that if we don't think about where our food is coming and what is being manufactured and produced and how that works with our genome, we kind of we don't have a complete solution. We don't really have an answer. We can't look kind of we always say in our in our training is you never look at genetics in isolation. Mm. It just doesn't exist in isolation. And and um, one of the you know we we, we have this um I had this course with a fellow Australian, uh, Christine Holton from uh, Brisbane, an extraordinary nutritional biochemist. Yes. And what, what Christine taught me and what she brought to, to my work is this nutrigenomic gene expression. I really do think she's one of the experts in that space. And um, we, we, we try to bring both of them together to be able to create a new way of thinking about nutrition that whenever you... Whenever you actually choose a food, when you choose, whatever you choose, we always say like every single time we eat, we change gene expression. It's not like, oh, I ate well this month, I think I changed my gene expression. It's not like that at all. It's actually every single mouthful at that time changes gene expression. I have argued with my wife uh, on many occasions. I, I've said for years, it's the average of what you eat. It's, you know, I don't need a salad every night. And her answer was, you didn't raise children. You don't know what it's like. There's a concept, I think, as well, that women are moving into this field. And science has been a fairly male-dominated field and the an analytical side of honing down to a specific question without paying attention to the whole. The paradox here for me is, as we hone down onto the tiniest detail of genetics, it in fact expands out to the whole environment of breastfeeding a child, yeah. delivering the baby, an environment of toxins, eating yeah. for health and life and it being a, you know, a joyful expression of growing healthy babies. And I think women have a much better grasp of the whole. 
then I think male brains are a little bit focused on the task at hand, whereas they don't expand out necessarily. I won't argue with that. I'll <laughs> well, take that one. I won't argue okay. with that. Okay. And I'll hand in my card as a, you know, as a practicing male. People have said, you, you traitor. But changing that, but what no, I was meaning is yeah. the paradox is as you go further into the genes, you think that's being highly specific. But when you, it, like a fractal, it opens up to say, hey, everything Absolutely. is important. That idea that Everything's every meal that, yeah. is important is, is yeah, I'd love you to expand on that. Really, yeah. at the meal level, there are changes going on meal by meal. Is that true? Yep. Meal by meal. Meal by meal, you're changing gene expression. There isn't a delay in the impact. So every time you eat, every nutrient that passes your lips, it has an immediate effect on switching on and switching off genes. Wow. And I think this is, you're, you're, you're 100% right. That is, if I only pass on one thing today, it's, it's that idea that this is not a generalist kind of average-out experience. And we talk about here in South Africa, we talk about health is a daily choice. And we say that because of that concept, that every decision, you know, when you go in the morning and go to your coffee shop and you make a decision on what coffee to choose, yeah. what coffee you choose will change the expression at that time. When you decide to meditate before, before you go to work, changing gene expression. And this is when we come to that full solution that you, you mentioned, whether it's meditation and some kind of stress management, whether it's the kind of exercise that you choose. One kind of exercise will change gene expression in one way, but it's all happening in real time. Uh-huh. It's just constant switches going on and off, on and off all the time. And if we can, if we can understand that, it's extremely powerful in terms of impacting behavior. It makes the science very difficult. I mean, we still think of science as aggregated statistical science, but really this is playing out per individual with their individual genetics, biochemistry, their stressors in the environment, their nutrition in the environment. How do you turn that into a science and how do you provide advice for the individual <laughs> and their family when each one is so different from another? Is there is there a practical way that we can translate that into healthcare that is meaningful at, at the individual level? Well, I think, you know, I think we're finding our way in that. Um, Christine and I will argue that we think that we do have the answer to that. I mean, I, I'm lucky enough to have my own clinic where I can practice and play around with it, mm. um, as well as an education program that trains practitioners. And we've been training practitioners for quite some time now to be able to put genetics into context. So what we try and teach is this concept of how do we take everything that we know, doesn't matter if you're a naturopath or a doctor or a dietitian or homeopath, how do we take what we know? How do we build in the insights of the genetics, the information we can get about an individual, about what areas we might need to be concentrating on, where some genes might be quite powerful, and then how do we uh, obviously, bring in functional testing, biomarkers, and all of that. And then, how do we use that information to make the best decision possible for our patient? Yeah. And we believe that we can train practitioners to be able to make that kind of decision making process. But it, that, it's not something that's taught at university. It's not something that's taught in dietetics or medicine. Right. It's it's really something that you have to almost retrain practitioners. I mean. We always, you know, we always laugh and say, like, it's almost the ones we need to train the most of the dietitians because we almost have to <laughs> unlearn, and the doctors, unlearn what we were taught. Yes. 
and kind of relearn it. Because what we what we're teaching now is the power of nutrition. The nutrition now stands above everything else in terms of power. Now, now medicine does the same thing, but what medicine does, we talk about the difference between modulation and activation. Mm-hmm. What medicine does is it goes in and it just like knocks everything over, puts all the switches up, and it's a, a major activation. But it's got it's got no finesse to it, it's got no signaling, it's got no should we switch that switch up a little bit, should we dim it a bit? Where the medicine will do that. Most most of medicine as well, most of the drugs we have are typically enzyme poisons that, you know, when an imbalance occurs between pathways, we know how to find a chemical that will blockade one pathway to allow for an evening up. And so blockading prostaglandins gives you an anti-inflammatory yeah. response. The, the medicine is yeah. the science of poisons used at a dose that you hope does not poison. Correct. That doesn't, kill, doesn't always kill the patient, yeah. Yes. One of the problems with that is drugs are, in my experience, not sustainable. Diet and nutrition, of course, is, <laughs> right? But course, if you yeah. take the approach of we knock out an enzyme, you find the consequences downstream of that. Whereas if you take a diet, you don't find those negative consequences downstream. So in that sense, nutrition is far more powerful because it's sustainable. And it may be more powerful for another reason that it's affordable. Well, it's, yeah, it's affordable. I mean, it's, it's, there's so many good reasons, but generally it's affordable, it's accessible and available. But, but, yeah, but Johanna, we don't knock, so nutrition can never knock something out. Right. Nutrition works on a more frequently level and it modulates. Right. And modulation is what you want. So when, you, when you're using, say, a cruciferous vegetable, you can, and you, you have, which is full of all these lovely isocyanates and um, the kind of sulforaphane, you, you are modulating the expression of these. When there are much more powerful um, compounds that you can take as a medicine, but they actually almost overwork and they actually wipe out the whole signaling system. Yes. So this is the this is the sophistication of nutrition. This is the nutrition that we need to be learning in our degrees, where we can we can become masters with nutrients to be able to to impact signaling more than anything. Mm-hmm. You know the concept of using. Pro-oxidants as antioxidants. You yes. know, whereas at the university I was taught, you know, just throw all the antioxidants you can possibly imagine into a supplement and take it. Um, and now we understand that actually what you want to do is you want to create almost a, 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 a light, mild, pro-oxidant environment as a signal to be able to switch on your antioxidant um, endogenous system. So this is where nutrition is starting to become a really exciting science. That, that area... Fascinates me. We've had this concept of hormesis for going back a century. The idea that a a mild poison can, in fact, induce the most powerful pharmacology, which is one's own pharmacology. And this NRF2 kind of expression, something that can trigger through the diet, a plant poison triggering an effect in the host that is protective, antioxidant, and that signals cells rather than biochemically doses you to a certain point. It's such a non-linear way of thinking about it that I can understand a little how the you know each meal can actually make that difference. Can you go into yeah. that a little bit? The the NRF two. I'm not sure I or anyone else truly understands all the details, but you seem to have a good grasp of that, Christine, and you have a a bit of a course in that. 
Yeah. So I would say that I'm, I'm, I'm going to um, say that, that Christine is probably the greatest expert on Eros to, in Eros 2 of anyone I know. Oh, okay. And, and I shall ask really her. Is her space. I mean, so, I mean, I can give you an answer, but she's going to do it so much better. Mm-hmm. But I will say, I mean, this is um, what's so exciting about the course that we teach is, you know, I was uh, building a course in youth genetics. That was really my expertise. And, and Christine and I met each other at a conference in Italy, standing in the queue, waiting and, and kind of eyes upon the wine on the table and we just go and have some wine. And so, you know, Italian conferences, they give you wine at lunchtime. And we got talking and we realized that we were coming to this, the story around each learning from completely different directions, me from a very dietetic nutrigenetic and her from a very nutritional biochemistry. And we discovered that when we put our two, we called ourselves, you know, like nutrigenomic soulmates, that when we <laughs> put our two sets of knowledge together, we had an incredibly powerful answer. So I'll give an example around NRF2. We, we, NRF2 is, uh, is like a master regulator. And we know that, let's talk about hormone metabolism. We know that in hormone metabolism, estrogen metabolism, there's a whole phase one, phase two detoxification. There's a whole lot of genes that can kind of cause chaos with um, with how we metabolize both endogenous and exogenous um, hormones, like the GFTs. Um, we talk about even comps, obviously having a, having a significant impact. Um, and then there's some kind of peripheral ones like your NCHR, your methylation genes. And then a super one that Christina both love, like um, NQ1, quinonoductase. Amazing gene, absolutely fascinating. Now, all of these genes have to work up to me for us to be able to metabolize and manage how estrogens are, are, are processed in our body. And at any point, obviously, you can have like a dysfunction in, in one of our SNPs which is causing kind of a change in metabolism. And um, this is where um, the sulforaphane and certain other fashion nutrients are incredibly powerful in upregulating. So what Christine and I did, we, we took something like estrogen metabolism, and we actually gave a presentation on this a couple of years ago, where we presented together, and we took one pathway, which is quite a complicated pathway, and I gave the presentation on how different genetic gene variants in the metabolism of hormones could create a kind of a dysfunction in the process that might land up with um, kind of different, you know, the, the estrogens going down different kind of pathways. Right. And then what Christine did was she came in and she said, well, how do we, if we, if we know through using genetics that NQ1 isn't functioning optimally, in fact, we might have a home diet, and in fact, we've got a very, very low NQ1 activity. Now we need to upregulate, we need to switch on these. And we know that NRF2 switches on genes. That's, we think it switches on about 2,000 protective genes. Wow. So if we know that estrogen metabolism is suboptimal, what we want to do now is we want to go and impact gene expression in a way that, that switches on all these protective genes, and that's where NRF2 comes in. Then Christine came in and gave this wonderful presentation on how we can use nutrition to switch on things like NRF2 to upregulate the rest of the GST family, the one that hasn't been potentially knocked out, to provide that kind of methylation support around comp. And this is one of the, I would say to anyone who's listening to this, that if you ever have an opportunity to be involved in nutrigenomics, you must always ask yourself the question, have they covered both nutrigenetics and nutrigenomics. Because if you only have a conversation about the one and not the other, then you're not actually getting the full beauty of the field. Right. 
The nutrigenetic seems to be the easier one to grasp, especially for us limited male minds, <laughs> because there's a, a heterozygous, homozygous, we name a gene, and as you would probably yeah. know, one of the flaws of medicine is you get something like MTHFR and we flog it to death as though it was the only oh, gene worth yeah. knowing yeah. about. And yeah. you see these, uh, and I've done it myself in enthusiasm in the early days, load up with methylfolate, load up with methyl B12 and make the person yeah. sicker than they have ever been in their whole lives. Yeah, absolutely. And we back off a little bit and say, well, why didn't that work? And so doctors love an easy answer. You, you have a headache, here yeah. is paracetamol. You have uh, arthritis, here is celecoxib. Um, it doesn't work that way, does it? When, when you're thinking of ge nutrigenetics yeah. and nutrigenomics, the nutrigenetic part is only a data point. It's not a... Um, a treatment. It doesn't describe a treatment. You have to move to the whole of genome and the expression before you have a concept of how would I manage this. Is that what your course yeah. does? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's on so many levels. I mean, the MTHFR fiasco has been, for me, the darkest hour of genomics. And I know it's right. dramatic, but I really do believe that. That's, you know, what happened was we had this really exciting field, a couple of um, uh, Practitioners who market themselves extremely well, like MTHFR, the mutation is the answer. You know, it defines everything about us: autism, ADHD, depression, anxiety, mm. pretty much everything. And, and what we need to understand is that these gene variants, these SNPs, that we talk about in genetics, are, are what we call low penetrants. Yeah. By themselves, they do not cause disease. All they are is a marker of biochemistry. They give us an insight where a biochemical pathway may be working suboptimally. Right. The other very important thing to know is that these variants work in pathways. They don't work in isolation. If you think about methylation, they're kind of three transformation pathways, not one. And MTH5 is only one part of it. And MTH5677 is only one step in the one pathway. Mm. Um, and what happened was anyone, as you say, got onto the MTHFR bandwagon. They started um, giving these extremely high doses of folate. We started pushi pushing everyone into this really like horrible overmethylation. The symptoms were actually worse than the prior symptoms before they started taking the folate. <laughs> so it really has been quite a And we're still in that space. I mean, we still have, um, um, we still encounter a great deal. So what we what we teach in the course is is a, a completely different approach, which is um, gene variants in nutrigenetics by themselves are not that powerful, but they are extremely informative. Mm -hmm. When you take a whole bunch of low penetrance gene variants and you look at them in terms of biochemical pathways, and this is why Christine and I love biochemistry so much. You look at them in terms of biochemical pathways, you start getting a sense of the impact of those variants on the, on the quality of that biochemical pathway. Once you have an understanding that perhaps that biochemical pathway is not working up to me, you can then think, what are the interventions that I can go use to, to upregulate? And that's why we, you know, we very much on the principles of functional medicine, that we go upstream. We start yeah. at cellular systems. We don't talk about disease. We, we start inflammation, methylation, oxidative stress. Because that's where, and, uh, where we have kind of a dysfunctional biochemical situation. If they're happening at, upstream at that level, we'll never solve anything downstream. Mm -hmm. So then we, once we've understood that, and that's where nutrigenetics is so helpful in identifying in an individual where we need to be focusing our attention, 
And then nutrigenomics is how do we use nutrition to be able to impact that biochemistry? And, and what is unique about the course that we were able to build, Christine and I, is we were able to build both sides of the coin. We were able to build how do we use genetics to identify in our patients which area we need to work in? And then what do we do with nutrition to be able to upregulate or downregulate genes to be able to compensate for what we found in the nutrigenetics? Does your course also give us tools to identify when we have been successful in that nutritional approach? So are there... I'll give you the example that I'm thinking of. Part of the reason the MTHFR1 particular genetic SNP was important is doctors noticed high homocysteine in people, males who had yeah. heart attacks in their 40s and 50s. And there was a concept of, oh, homocysteine causes heart attacks. Yeah. What can we do to reduce homocysteine? Yeah. Without knowing genetics, people just said B vitamins. And B vitamins we use to lower homocysteine. And 30 years later, we said, well, the heart attack rate didn't really change. You know, what we did was we changed a homocysteine, which is a kind of biomarker of that gene. Right. And then the enthusiasm was lost entirely. But what, it, what doctors always crave is, okay, you've told me what the problem is. How can I intervene? Now, doctors think drug-wise, but if the new doctor is thinking nutrition, not only how do I intervene, but how do I know I've been successful? How do I not let this person run down the path that they were otherwise biochemically disposed to through their genes? So what's the markers yeah. that we can say, are we successful or not? Yeah, I mean, that, that is one of the great challenges that we have, I think, in the field of medicine and nutrition at the moment is, is biomarkers. And I really do think that some of the most exciting developments in the next decade will come from biomarker development. And you're 100% right. That's exactly our challenge here is how do we measure if we've, been, if we've actually impacted the gene? Right. Now, we have this wonderful thing called functional testing, which I'm, I know you have a lot of in, in Australia as well where we can use things like the Dutch test, we can use organic acids, amino acid testing, to be able to get a baseline in terms of biomarkers and then um, be able to measure it once we've done the intervention. Right. I mean, the Dutch test is a perfect example of how, when I was talking about estrogen metabolism... And the Dutch, the Dutch test is the urinary test to measure all the metabolites of, of most of the sterile Correct. hormones and do it a, over a 24-hour yes. period. So, you know, not just yes. look at one static picture, but how the body manages it over the day. So how will we use that test, for example? Get a baseline and then intervene and then remeasure? Yeah, so I'll give you an example. We use it quite a bit. Okay. Um, I mean, it, 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 we use it quite a bit for exactly that reason. So if we have a patient who comes to us for any reason why we, where we suspect. So, so the difference is we use genetic testing as a, as um, a starting point uh, because functional testing is extremely expensive. Yes. So we always we use genetics almost as a screening test to see what areas may be areas that we want to investigate further. Either a patient comes to us with a, a strong family history of breast cancers or um, any kind of menopausal hormone issues, we might and um, what we're first doing is we would do a nutrigenetic test to see if there are any genes significantly impacting hormone metabolism. And then um, if we felt that this was the area that needed further investigation, we would do the hormone, the kind of the Dutch urinary hormone test, which is one of the better ones and more recent ones on the market, where we can really get a sense of the pathways of estrogen metabolites and what the issues are. Um, I interestingly did mine quite recently and found that... Um, 
my estrogen battalion was actually pushing me to the force. I was not um, not aware of. So I couldn't. I, I couldn't have guessed that. If I'd gone to a normal gynecologist in South Africa, I would have had my kind of total estrogen, total testosterone, total progesterone, and you know nothing. Okay. And then, and then I have choices. I can look at my genes. I can see where in that mutagenetic profile I I perhaps have a deletion in GST. Perhaps my N two one, my quinone reductase is not going. And then I can choose a supplement, nutrition, a plan to be able to upregulate. I can then, in three months to six months' time, take the Dutch test again and be able to see whether those, that estrogen pathway is now moving to a different place. Right. So that's an example where we can use functional testing together with nutrigenomic testing, together with nutrigenomic intervention to be extremely powerful. But that that isn't always. I mean, functional testing is, is, is uh, can be quite expensive, mm. especially when you have to repeat the test. So this is where we would like to be. Uh, we're definitely doing it at the moment, but we're not using functional testing as much as we'd like to, just because of the cost barrier. Right. But that definitely is going to be our answer. Like most things, when they become more common in medicine, the costs come down once you commoditize it a yeah. little. So. This is the other big argument in medicine. Medicine tends to wait for the early expression of disease. The pathology yeah. tests become positive at a yeah. point where you wish you had acted earlier. But every time medicine, yeah. which is good as disease treatment, every time it fiddles with prevention, it tends to get it wrong. It tends to you know, give drugs when a person does not need Absolutely. drug therapy. So cholesterol management, inflammation management, blood pressure management, yeah. where there are other options we tend to apply medicine that's great in yeah. extremis, but is not good for a person who's going to live the next 40 years with a medication. So that transition, I think, yeah. will happen as we get better and better at understanding it. And I've got to say this, apart from, well, let's say doctors should come and do yours and Christine's courses. I understand they're online courses, aren't they? The Foundations of Nutrigenomics and Translational Nutrigenomics. Yeah. We have two courses. We have our, our first course, which we built um, translational nutrigenomics, which we really say is, you know, if you want to be an expert in nutrigenomics, if you want to differentiate yourself in the marketplace and like it, it's a brilliant course. It's very high level. Mm -hmm. um, you, really, you really delve deeply and you really become uh, an expert in the space. Mm -hmm. Then we realized that not everyone wanted to be an expert. So we built uh, what's called the foundation course. Also, those that kind of just want to get a sense of the field and not sure whether they want to be an expert, so we built the foundations course. And it kind of it goes under the brand of Manuka Science. Right. Um, it was named after the Manuka honey from down the road oh, from right. me. Right. No, it is the, the whole new science of the whole of life and the, uh, the influences from every direction. But Manuka, that concept um, of using something like honey, my own mother had to go through wound management. The best of science, the best of hospitals could do nothing about her wounds and her ulcers on her legs. The Manuka honey was the difference and the turning point for her. Amazing. And yes, amazing. it was It was amazing to me as well. And uh, as her diet failed her, it was external application. And it, it does lead me back to that concept that, yes, we're humans. We live in a world of plants, of biology, of things around us. Yeah. We've co-developed and co-evolved with those. It should have been obvious to us that the molecules of life have got yeah. a higher capacity for sustained treatment and help and benefit yeah. than the drugs that we manufacture in a laboratory. But that was the very first Absolutely. practical experience that I had of that. 
Yeah, that was, I mean, that was right there. I mean, it's, it's an amazing story. And now we know the time. So in the time, I mean, what's interesting is when they were using the new timing for, for wounds, they didn't truly understand why it was able to do what it was doing. Now, because we know, you know, at a molecular level, but it's still, it's, it's, an, it's still extraordinary. It's an extraordinary story that should be keeping us over and over again, this concept of, again, modulation where the, the, the plants and the foods around us are much more powerful at talking to our bodies than, than drugs, which kind of just go in and kind of mm. shoot everything down. So a final question is, if you had to give just one or two pieces of advice to our listeners, to practitioners who are looking to understand nutrigenetics, nutrigenomics, what would it be? Would it be to be educated? Is there a way of immersing ourselves in this safely um, and understanding it? Is there a simple trick that we should know about with, you know, eat a salad every day? Would you give Would you give a, a kind of potted piece of advice or do we have to immerse ourselves in this whole thing? I, you know, I, I wish I could say there was an easy way. Right. Um, I don't think there is. I think if the most important thing is to acknowledge and understand that this is not knowledge we were given at university. Mm-hmm that we have a knowledge gap, I call it the knowledge gap, that we have to go back and add a, a study again to fill the gap. But then I would also say that the what waits on the other side is so exciting and engaging that it's almost, it's it's like it's like having a veil to them. It's like walking through the looking glass in Alice in Wonderland. Right. Where you kind of you see through a certain lens and then you, uh, you study something like this and come out the other side, like that, you know, you know gene expression as an apple, and you're like, you, you, you can see the work you do, and it doesn't matter whether you're a homeopath, whether you're a phytotherapist, whether you're a dietitian, your then changes. And unfortunately, I really do believe that education has to be the first step. It doesn't even have to do the big course. You can do a short course. But start learning. Start engaging. Start learning. Start reading. Get the terminology because you don't want to The reality is genetics is mainstream. It's the new medicine, isn't it? And it's being handed back beyond the doctors. Yeah, yeah. And this is where the power lies. And if, if you're not going to engage with genetics, you're being left behind. And, and I know it's a, it's a very harsh thing to say, but it's the absolute truth. If you're not, if you're not in it, you will be left. You are the dinosaur. You will be left behind because genetics is um, is not just part of what we do. It's not. It's not a, a added bonus. Dr. Yale Joffe, it has been delightful to talk with you. I hope to talk with you again soon. You and Christine, between you, I'd love to have more conversations on this. There's so many areas we haven't touched, but thank you. It's been delightful today. Oh, thank you, Mark. It's been fascinating. It was, it was very interesting for me, too. I really enjoyed it. And, uh, yeah, I look forward to any other time. This is FX Omics, and I'm Dr. Mark Donahue. Registrations are now open for the 8th Bioceuticals Research Symposium to be held in Melbourne from the 3rd to the 5th of April 2020. To register, please go to bioceuticals.com.au and click on the Education tab.